This is an AMI podcast. Welcome back to Outdoors with me, Lawrence Gunther. In episode 38, you might recall, it was all about monsters from the Great Lakes. Well, we're continuing that theme, only these are real things that swim in the Atlantic Ocean. Great white sharks. Why are they making their way back to Atlantic Canada? What does it mean for tourism? What does it mean for fish and fishing? What does it mean for my plans to go swim on the beach out there? Lily has some interesting facts to share about white sharks and the seals that are drawing them in. My friend, Dr. Chris Harvey Clark, is going to talk to us about his own recent encounter with a great white while scuba diving in Halifax Harbor. I'm going to review a beeping compass that I use on my kayak and port-a-boat and even on a 40-foot lobster boat one day when I was out tagging sharks. Come on, Lewis. I'm starting to get cold. Let's go find Miss Lily. Getting Schooled with Miss Lily. Lily, tell us some of your uh, favorite beach vacation memories. I'm asking, Lily, because, you know, with the demand for RV vacation sites being so high, you know, more and more people are camping, we have to start planning our vacation sooner than later if we're ever going to get a reservation. Uh, I, you know, I like Sandbanks. We I go know. there every year. Yeah, for, we're going there. Like a week. Obviously, we're going there. We better we better go there. That's your number one beach vacation location. In the world. Uh, Tadoussac was cool, but not for swimming. No. No, I liked it. There was like stuff there, like there's sea glass. Yeah. And cool rocks you could find. Yeah, lots of things to look at for sure. It was a beach full of odd things to look at. Beautiful things. Fun stuff. Two beaches. One very interesting. The other one very swimmable. Yeah, totally. Did you like that beach in uh, Maine we went to a couple years ago? I I did. It was cold. It was very cold. It That's was cold. Atlantic Ocean. I did like Maine. Yeah. I know mom didn't like Maine, but I liked Maine. Yeah, she found it a little too touristy. I thought it was cool. Yeah. I like that beach vibey town. Oh yeah, very beach vibey. Lily, there's been a lot of talk about climate change and oceans warming up as a result, you know, warming temperatures. I wonder if this is happening in Atlantic Canada. I'm dropping a hint here. Oh boy. <laughs> From what I was able to learn, warming ocean temperatures and longer springs are melting increasingly more of the Arctic ice pack. The south-flowing Labrador current pushes the cold melt water south towards the Atlantic provinces. It also pushes the Gulf Stream away from Canada's east coast. If anything, the water along Canada's east coast is cooler now than it was 50 years ago, even if the air temperatures are growing warmer because of climate change. Lily, you and your brother Theo have never visited Atlantic Canada, and I know that's my fault and your mom's fault, but we were going to go a couple years ago, and then, you know, COVID came along, and last summer things were closer as well, but this summer, we're going to go. I did a fifth grade project on Newfoundland and Labrador, and it sounded pretty cool. Where else would you like to go in Atlantic Canada, though? I want to go to PEI because of uh, Anne of Green Gables. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And I want to see the red soil. Mm -hmm. And PEI just sounds really, really nice. You know that beach in Maine, eh? When we were there, mm -hmm. I found out afterwards that um, there was a lot of sharks around that area. Like, they say now some of those beaches you shouldn't really even be swimming in or surfing in. And, 
you know, Cape Cod's been renamed uh, unofficially Cape Shark. There's a lot of great white sharks moving into Atlantic Canada and the northeast part of the U.S. coast. Lily, what can you tell us about the shark situation on these coasts? <laughs> I, I asked you to look into that. What did you find out? Well, when you mentioned uh, about how Maine had a lot of sharks after we left, yeah. Theo, who's sitting right beside me, broke out into a cold sweat, and I think I just saw a tear fall out of his eye. Oh, no. <laughs> he hates sharks. Oh, no. Okay. Um, over 400 white sharks have now been tagged with tracking devices along the coast of Maine and Massachusetts. Wow. Based on drone surveillance, about 10 out of every 100 white sharks observed have the highly visible tag showing. So 400 have been tagged, 10 out of every 100 show their tags. That's a lot more sharks than have been tagged. That's a lot of great white sharks. (laughs) Canada has a tagging and tracking program as well, but it's just getting started and they're nowhere near as far along as they are in the United States. However, in October 2020, they did tag the biggest white shark ever, now known as the Queen of the Ocean. Wow. Yeah, she weighs 1,606 kilograms and measures 5.25 meters in length. That's a megalodon. That's pretty close to a megalodon, yep. (laughs) A third of a megalodon. (laughs) A third of... But that's still a huge shark. We now know, like, there's going to be more great white sharks getting into Atlantic Canada. Why why is that? Hmm... It would seem that's because of the gray seal. Huh. Their numbers have rebounded significantly after seal calls ended in 1980s. Mm. According to the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, there are now 450,000. 450,000 gray seals? Gray seals and a further 30,000 harbor seals in total along North America's east coast. Wow. Yeah, the vast majority of these are located in Canada. Yay, yay for Canada? <laughs> or or nay for Canada? Well, nay in the fact that that's bringing the sharks here. Yeah. Uh, the vast majority of these are located in Canada. Add in five more seal species commonly found in Canada, such as ringed, hispida, harp, bearded, and hooded. <laughs> yeah. And it's a lot of seals. That's a lot of forage. Uh, to be honest, uh, getting exact numbers isn't easy. As numbers being reported range wildly based on whose website you visit. Do you think maybe the natural balance along the east coast of Canada is being reestablished? I mean, yeah, we hunted seals for decades. Now they're coming back. Now the great white sharks are coming back to eat the seals. And I even heard some killer whales are moving in to eat the great white sharks. Nature restored. It doesn't bode well for the surfing and swimmers. <laughs> or Theo's fear. How about everybody's? I not. I'm not scared of sharks. You punch them in the nose and they'll swim away. Uh huh. Uh huh. Uh huh. Well, this is wise words from Lily. Guys. Yes. So. Yes. That's the answer. One thing we're gonna do for sure, and that's visit my friend Dr. Chris Harvey Clark. He is a professor at Dalhousie University, oh. and he's also scuba dives and and does a lot of shark research off the east coast of Canada. And he just had an encounter with a great white shark the other day. On purpose or by accident? Because there's was a big not difference. Planned. He was not in a cage. Oh boy. Let's hear what Chris has to say about all that. Okay. Thanks. Time for the bucket list.
Well, the, the whole reason we're we're talking, uh, Lawrence, is because sharks are on my mind because I just had probably the first diver encounter in the wild um, outside of a cage in Canada with a white shark on Tuesday. I heard your explanation on the CBC News. Tell us what happened. For the last two years, I've been working on a documentary with a friend of mine on white sharks in Atlantic Canada and their kind of resurgence. And last year, I did the first ever cage dives on the south shore of Nova Scotia. And we were very successful in finding and filming white sharks at surprisingly close proximity to land and in surprisingly shallow water. Wow. So we went back this year, moved up the coast a bit to an area between uh, Lunenburg and Mahone Bay, and we had um, 22 encounters in three wow. days. So was, <laughs> that was in October. And normally by November, the water's getting cool. Um, sharks have disappeared or they're headed south. I had really sort of thought it shouldn't be too sharky out there. So we went and tried to um, get in the water at the site where I do torpedo ray work. Ended up in Halifax Harbor. And there's a shipwreck site there. There's an old hospital ship called the Letitia that sits in about 80 to 125, 130 feet of water. There's a sandy bottom at the bottom of the cliffs there. So I thought the water's still pretty warm. It's around 12. Um, Maybe there's some torpedo rays parked in the sand down there because 12 seems to be the magic temperature for them. When it gets much colder they take off. We found someone had left a float on the wreck site. So we tied off on that, me and my buddy, Michael Schwinghammer, who's a Navy diver. And we went down the line and the top 30 feet of the water was just terrible. It was bad, bad visibility, green, full of plankton. You could barely see the tips of your fin. So it was pretty dark and murky. But once you got down to 50 feet or so, it started to open up. And we went right down to 110 feet. Didn't find the wreck. So we came up to about 70 feet and we traversed back and forth. And we got down fairly low on air. And I thought, well, this is a bust. Let's just get out of here. So we're headed back to the ascent line. I look up and I see this enormous tail disappearing off into the murk, um, easily five feet across, maybe six feet across, a big tail. And um, we were down at about 75 feet. The shark was up at about 60, going the opposite direction to us. So our paths had crossed. And the shark came back around almost immediately. It had gone uphill, made a great big curve, and then come in again from the same direction it originated from. It was closer this time. It was about 20 feet. And I had a good 20, 20 seconds of it going by to identify it positively. So all the features, you know, they have a stocky body. I uh, couldn't tell what sex it was. Uh, they have a really distinct nose and sort of underbite chin. And they have a really kind of a stocky body that tapers down to a really relatively thin caudal peduncle, you know, the, the stem that attaches the body to the tail. Yeah. Um, and this thing went by very deliberately and I was, you know, my head's on a swivel cause I'm looking for my buddy who still hasn't really clued in. He's far enough away. I can't grab him or anything. I'm, I'm taking my dive light and strobing it at him. By then he noticed me and I gave him the shark dorsal fin on the head sign and pointed up. And at that moment, the shark went by a third time. It was up a little higher and it was sort of silhouetted. That was at least 10 feet long. It was a good size white shark. Um, and he saw it and his, he turned around. I could tell he couldn't believe what we had seen. And he, and he did the shark sign on his head, sort of shaking his head. And I, I nodded my head vigorously. And then I did the double thumbs. We're out of here. We took off like a, our butts were on fire for the ascent line, found the anchor, which was about 80 feet and went up the ascent line, like rockets blew through our safety stop normally after a dive like that, especially at 110 feet. Even if your computer is not telling you you must decompress, you'll, you'll do a safety stop. Yeah. 
And uh, we blew through the safety stop, got to the surface. Michael had doubles on, so I got him onto the boat first. I have a little rickety T-ladder on the back of my Boston Whaler. So he went up that, took some time because he had his fins on. It's hard to walk up that ladder and get over the back of the boat. I'm in the water beside the boat, kind of floundering around. I had three or four hang lines hanging off the side of the boat to clip gear to, because normally that's what we do when we finish the dive. We take our gear off in the water, clip it off, get out onto the boat, and then haul the gear back into the boat. It's just a lot easier to get up the little ladder that way. For sure. So I got my tank off, went up the ladder, sort of flopped into the back of the boat. And then I think there was probably a few minutes there where we, we were just kind of hyperventilating and swearing a lot. <laughs> and, <laughs> and then we settled down, you know, having a, a face-to-face with a, a known dangerous species like that under bad conditions. I mean, rough as hell, very murky. Um, and the shark didn't just go by us once. It came back a couple more times. Diver attacks are rare. They're only about 4% of white shark attacks. Well, when they happen, they're usually pretty bad. Um, hmm. Shark that's that determined and will come after you, even though you've got all this clanky gear on, you look weird and you're blowing bubbles. That's going to be a determined shark. And if you read those accounts, a couple of couple of common features, usually the shark has come by and checked the divers out a few times and then comes disappears and then comes back. Another thing is usually the shark doesn't hit you on the bottom. It hits you either going to the surface or at the surface. You know, this is the problem with knowing too much, right? Yeah. <laughs> I, I teach, I teach shark school at Dalhousie in the summer to, you know, we have a shark course and I teach a lecture in there called shark smart, which is about, you know, how to avoid uh, becoming a shark statistic. And these are all the things I tell the students about, you know, you know, don't wear shiny stuff. Don't go diving near a seal colony. Well, that's exactly where we were. We were around the corner from the Duncan's reef seal colony. Chris, when you were um, looking up, you're down in the clear water, but you're 70 feet down. And then yeah. you know you have to go through that murky water where you have almost zero visibility. I yeah. mean, what were you thinking when you when you knew you had to get through that and the shark was above you in that murky water? Well, somewhere nearby. I mean, we knew there was a shark. We knew it had expressed interest more than you wanted. We were definitely in a vulnerable place. So, you know, my training kind of kicked in and uh, I knew exactly what we had to do, which was get up there as fast as we could, get out of the water as quick as we could. Um, try and not thrash around too much. Um, one of the things people don't realize, everybody thinks that in dark, murky water, the shark can use its electrosensation. That, that modality is a submeter method, right? The sharks are using electrosense when they get a foot from you, which is way closer than you ever want them to be in this situation. Yeah. What they're really using is two things. One is that they have really superb low light ability to distinguish shades of gray you and I can't even imagine. So we look off into the murk underwater. We don't see a thing. The shark's looking back at us with a rod-rich retina, and it can see us as a little tiny difference in that shade of gray. Mm. So there's that. Then, of course, they have an ear that runs the whole length of the body, right? The acoustical lateral system. And people don't realize that that lateral line hooks up right with the ear. So they, you know, a 10-foot shark is a 10-foot ear. Basically, the whole lateral line is listening for and locating you. And it can hear your bubbles. It can hear your swimming movements. And that's a modality that's probably good under ideal conditions, you know, up to 100 feet or so, yeah. maybe further, um, depending on the type of vibration, especially if it's low frequency. 
this animal has all the advantages. And I think if it had really been determined, probably we, you know, one of us could have been injured for sure. We got out and we survived. And, you know, I was thinking about the stats, which is that about, you know, a third of the people who get bitten by white sharks don't survive. And the other two thirds are pretty badly injured. I've been swimming with sharks for 30 years. I know that I know the species extremely well. And I'm beginning to feel like after the experiences I've had making the documentary, um, I think we maybe have more sharks around, more white sharks than anybody suspected. But there's been no real um, concerted effort to look at the distribution and abundance of the species here. It's just kind of scattershot right now. Mm -hmm. So we get a lot of people, you know, everybody has an iPhone these days. So we're getting a lot of people reporting seeing a shark or what they thought was a white shark. Uh, We're getting a lot of people taking pictures of of predations that may or may not be white shark predations of seals. The important secondary factor there is that uh, white sharks hit surfers and people who are surface active like swimmers. Something like 60% of all the white shark hits are on surfers or boogie boarders and 26 are on swimmers. So you add those up, you're up to like 85% of all the bites that Mm -hmm. happen, happen to those two groups. I don't think anybody expected this. And it's not really surprising if you think about it, Lawrence, because, um, we certainly have motive and opportunity in this particular murder mystery. You know, we have a tremendous abundance of seals up here, as everybody knows. A lot of seals. A lot of seals. And uh, I don't know that anybody knows exactly how many. You, do, you know, you talk about the Sable Island seal population. When I started going out there in 1990, people were saying 20, 30,000 seals. And now people, some people say 100, some people say more than 100,000 seals at that location alone. And other locations as well. And this is mostly gray seals, which are bigger and more aggressive and harder prey, but still they're juicy and they're not that big. Um, also, um, harbor seals. So we have plenty of harbor seals around, especially on the South Shore. They are great prey for white sharks. And especially, you know, the white shark we saw is the size that I worry the most about. It was a 10 footer. So they're, you know, somewhere around four feet, give or take, when they're born. By the time they're 10 feet, they're probably in this sort of five, six, eight-year-old category, but they don't sexually mature till they're in their mid-20s and they're big. I mean, the males are 12 or 13 feet and the females are 15 feet when they sexually mature and can reproduce. The thing that happens with whites is that when they hit uh, that 10-foot, you know, sort of three-meter range, they undergo what's called um, an ontogenetic shift and they physically change. Their teeth actually change shape, believe it or not. They go from being kind of dagger-shaped teeth that are narrow like a Mako's to broad triangular teeth that are more like what you associate with an adult white shark. Yeah. They, and they're physically changing because their diet's changing at that age and they're changing from being fish eaters and they start eating mammals, but mm-hmm. they bite a lot of other things at the same time, you know, not having hands to investigate things that the tool of investigation for white sharks tends to be, you either bump it or you bite it. Mm-hmm. Almost all the seal carcasses I've examined that have been taken by a white you either one of two things, you're either looking at a half a carcass because it's a big shark and it's just chopped the thing in half. If it's a smaller shark, like a 10 footer, they usually sneak up behind and bite the animal on the lower half of the body. So they either get the back or they partially disembowel it, or they take off the, uh, the hind flippers and a bit of the meat back there. Um, that seems to be a really consistent pattern up here in the seal kills that I've looked at. Um, so clearly they're using, you know, stealth predation and they're approaching from behind, you know, exactly where your eyes are pointed. Um, and they will cut, they will find a way to get behind you. And my, uh, my colleague in doing the, the research on electric rays here, who's also the 
executive director of the Ocean Tracking Network, Dr. Fred Wierski. And I, you've talked with Fred. I have, yeah. Yeah. Well, Fred, um, Fred is, you know, he has got this fleet of, of intriguing machines that are out in the North Atlantic gathering data. And one of the machines is a gizmo called a Slocum glider. They look like a yellow torpedo about six or seven feet long, aluminum. They're about maybe a foot in diameter and they're packed with instruments. And they, they use very little power because they essentially just use a fin on the end to use buoyancy to go up and down in the water column. So they don't need a propeller. They just sort of use their buoyancy and they go out there and surf the ocean currents. And they come back on a, on a pre-programmed course and get picked up at the surface. Well, Fred's had two of these things attacked by sharks. In fact, he had one attack and sank off of PI somewhere. They had to send a ship up to find it and retrieve it with a remote operated vehicle. Um, so something about these ROVs is triggering some kind of response on the part of these sharks. And uh, I can tell you the, the, the number one suspect is a white shark. So you, you hear all this stuff on Discovery Channel about how, you know, shark attacks on man are mistake and these are very discerning animals and they can tell, you know, what's the flavor of the month and avoid things that aren't like sea otters and humans and so on. But they also have a brain the size of a walnut, even a big one. So, and it's really that brain is not not a lot of it is actually what we would consider brain. A lot of it is actually the end points of really advanced receptor systems, like really good acoustic receptors, really good olfactory receptors. And then a little tiny CPU on top of that, that kind of directs information to make sure that food goes down the right end and babies come out the other, you know, wow. so, yeah. so, you know, you're, you're, you're relying on an animal that's extremely well wired, but doesn't have a really good CPU to make last second decisions about what is and isn't edible. So, uh, I think probably I'm going to stay away from these areas near seal colonies until the water cools off quite a lot. And also, you know, we have enough animals cruising around out there with telemetry on right now to know there's still animals up in the Magdalen Islands, well to the north. Uh, there's an animal on the Grand Banks with the receiver. There's, um, there's still lots of animals far to the north. I wait for the water to cool off and uh, for the sharks to go away before I go back to these open ocean pelagic sites. Thank you so much and, and for being uh, available for me and doing this um, this reveal of like so much going on on the. Uh, I feel like you really brought us in and and gave us the uh, the close up view of what what we're hearing in the news. Just little bits and bites in the news. We hardly hear anything, right? Don't say bite. <laughs> you know, have, have, look Thanks. forward to seeing you, and let's hope the winter is not too brutal. Yeah. Just brutal enough to chase those white sharks away so I can yeah. get back in the water for a while. Yes. <laughs> You're always pushing the limit. Be careful, will you? Will do. Outdoor tips and tech. Six degrees on your left. 122 meters. I use this audio compass when I'm navigating my blind fishing boat, my kayak. It's about the size of a small brick. It's a plastic box with one button, a little headphone plug, and a little built-in speaker. The nice thing about this, it's ruggedized, and it's more or less water-resistant. So if there's splashing or a little rain going on, it's not going to affect this thing. You put it on the seat beside you or in the front of your kayak, just somewhere handy and close and safe. And once you set it down and you've got the uh, watercraft pointed in the direction you want to go in, you hit the button and it locks on. You get then two different tones that tell you if you're straying off course to the left or right. So I'm turning it on. 
The high pitch knows I'm going away over to the left. Now it's quiet. I'm on the right course. And I'm drifting right. Back on course. Pretty simple. I actually use this to uh, steer a 40-foot lobster boat back to Halifax after we spent the day in the, the Atlantic Ocean catching and tagging and releasing blue sharks. Everyone got a little sick that day, so it was just me and the captain left on our feet by the end of the day. I, I showed him how this worked. I pulled it out of my uh, day bag and uh, gave him a little demonstration. And I said, can I drive the boat back? And he said, sure, go ahead. So we set a course. I set my compass and, and we talked for a little while longer while I was driving. And then he wandered off. So about 15 minutes later, I said, hey, is anyone watching where we're going? And I heard the captain go, holy crap. <laughs> but we were fine. He just forgot. I've since purchased at least a half dozen apps for my iPhone that all claim to have this kind of compass beeping technology for, you know, navigating off the sidewalk. But I've yet to find one that works just so simple as this one. The others are seem okay, but not as precise and not as responsive. You know what? I wish these guys over in the UK where I got this from were still making them. But it was a father-son team. They made a few, sold a few, and uh, moved on to other things. Swimming, surfing, paddle boarding, even kayaking. They're all activities that you need to manage risk on the best of days. Storm, current, water temperatures... You know, there's always something that you have to be careful about and thinking about if you're going to have a safe day in the water. Shark encounters is just another variable that you need to take into consideration now if you're going to be doing these activities off the coast of Atlantic Canada. I'm not going to tell you not to have fun in Atlantic Canada, but if you're thinking of going out there and doing a lot of swimming, well, you should know that it's chilly. I want to thank Nazreen Abdel-Majid, Sam Robinson, and Paula Deneen. They're my technicians. The manager of AMI-audio is Andy Frank. This was an AMI podcast. For more accessible media, visit AMI.ca. Hi, I'm Jenny Bovard. Join me monthly for Low Vision Moments, where I speak with awesome guests about some of the amusing things that happen when you're blind or partially sighted. Watch on YouTube or download Low Vision Moments from your favorite podcast distributor.